0: Well, good evening and welcome. I think we'd better uh, make a start. And um, I'll start with the um, the best bit, which is a bit unkind, really, but the best bit is that you're all invited to a drink afterwards. So um, that uh, I guess I forget uh, at the end. Uh, there is a reception afterwards in the Senior Common Room on the fifth floor of the uh, old building. Now, I was just explaining to Lily that... The LSE used to have a rather firm tradition of inaugural lectures by new professors, which when I arrived I discovered had been observed somewhat in the breach. Um, and so I've been attempting to re-establish this, particularly where we bring in somebody from outside the school. And so I'm delighted that this evening we have the inaugural lecture of Lily Chuliaraki, who came to us from Copenhagen business school and is in effect, though this is a slightly sad thing to have to say, is in effect Roger Silverstone's uh, replacement. Roger was the head of the media department who died uh, in the summer of 2006. Um, She was educated originally in Athens and Lancaster, an unusual combination perhaps, um, and then went uh, to Copenhagen Business School and I guess must be one of the relatively few users of a Danish-Greek dictionary, uh, which uh, (laughs) uh, I think are limited edition uh, things, and she is going to speak to us tonight in a mixture of Danish and Greek. Um, (laughs) If that puts anyone off, uh, you can retreat now. Uh, The uh, principal work that she has been doing in recent years, which has led to a book published in 2006 called The Spectatorship of Suffering is in fact about uh, the way in which the media represents suffering and how that communicates itself to the audiences and what that means in terms of our connection uh, with the people involved. Uh, But that's as much as I can say about it uh, because you're going to say a lot more about it. Uh, Lily is, in addition to being a professor in the Department is also the research director of Polis, which is a new ish think tank uh, under Charlie Beckett, uh, which has been established in the Department of Media in collaboration with the University of Arts London to look at media issues generally. And you may have seen, those of you who are interested, quite a lot of seminars in the school on the media and the Secret Service or the media and politics, etc. Uh, and so uh, Lily's own personal research interests fit extremely well with the themes that POLIS uh, has been developing over the last few years. So, without more introduction, welcome to the school and
1: thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Well, this was a very accurate introduction. Actually, I will be uh, speaking about Danish and Greek, but not in Danish and Greek to your relief, I suppose. Um, It's a great honor and a great pleasure for me to be here. I'm going to start straight away because uh, we have a tight schedule and I have to leave some time for questions as well. So uh, let me just begin by showing you a picture of uh, Michael Burke uh, reporting here from Ethiopia in October 1984 on the victims of famine that drove 800,000 people to death um, 25 years ago. Now, this report was a watershed report. It was shown in more than 450 stations around the world and is still thought to be a turning point in at least two ways. On the one hand, it triggered uh, Live Aid and Bob Gelders and others 50 million uh, pounds of aid donation to Ethiopia. It also, partly because of live aid, uh, reminded us of the awkward, or should I say painful, condition of our times. But confronting the reality of distant suffering is confronting ourselves with the limits of the ethical and political legitimacy of modernity. Distant suffering on our screens was then, and still is now, a reminder of a world divided into zones of poverty and prosperity, of danger and safety, and persistently raises the question of what to do, even if in daily life we tend to forget that question. But at the same time, this report also ignited a different debate about the ways in which Suffering is portrayed in Western media. It was welcomed for its uh, shock effect, which made people care and raised money for the Ethiopian emergency. It was criticized for this same shock effect, for perpetuating a stereotypical image of Africa as a continent of death and war, for turning suffering into a spectacle for consumption in the mega screens of live-aid concerts, for ultimately bringing compassion fatigue among audiences of the West. No more pictures of dying African children, please. Both these outcomes of the picture and of the reportage, the practical action and suffering on the one hand, and the debate about how the media show human pain, throw into relief the power of the visibility of suffering in the news, a controversial and ambiguous power. This is the kind of visibility that inevitably questions, erases the question of what to do, the practical appeal, and simultaneously makes a moral claim as to how we relate to distant others, who it is important to care for. The Michael Burke report has admittedly been uniquely successful in both respects, both in terms of its practical appeal and in terms of its moral claim. But this is rare. Indeed, if the power of the visibility of suffering in the news is ambiguous and it is controversial, this is precisely because the practical question of what to do is not always connected in a straightforward manner, to the ethical question of who should I care for? Who should I do something about? And this is really what my talk is all about. It is suffering as public communication that tells us who to care for by addressing the question of what to do in selective ways. Sometimes telling us that action is possible or, rarely, even necessary but most often reassuring us that action is irrelevant to our everyday lives. So, in some way, I revisit some of these uh, issues about stereotyping and dehumanizing others, and similar tensions between raising awareness and compassion fatigue uh, that this debate raised, but from a contemporary perspective. In our global media age, I want to claim, these issues are meaningful In fact, they are crucial insofar as they connect the visibility of suffering with the imagination of community beyond the nation, beyond our own neighborhood. And there is indeed a lot of talk today about us belonging to a global village, about the reality and the moral imperative of a cosmopolitan imagination. Thanks to transnational networks and to new media, the argument has it, we are now more connected and closer to distant others than ever before. And this brings with it an awareness of just how interdependent our lives and fates are on this planet. And it brings about also a new sense of responsibility towards these others. But the questions are, what kind of awareness? What kind of responsibility? So what I'm going to do in a minute is take us through examples of news broadcasts uh, on suffering. And what I want to do is to look at the different ways in which these broadcasts manage the visibility of suffering, and in so doing, I want to show, they already respond to the question of what to do. And they already put forward a moral claim as to whose suffering should matter for us. In this sense, the discussion on the management of the visibility of suffering, which is my topic today, is also at the same time a discussion about what kinds of people the media imagine us to be. And they do so every day, through their news gathering techniques, their conventions of reporting, their standardized narratives, and their use of imagery, their editing procedures, News editing is law, says Roger Silverstone in Media and Morality, to convey just that sense of power that journalists have in cutting and pasting different versions of world events for us. The question, then, on how the news manages the the visibility of suffering through, for example, a sublime tableau vivant of a flooded landscape, a sentimental story of children dying, or an amateur documentary of the tsunami, is also a question about the kinds of sensibilities that the news encourages us to enact. For the cultural representations and aesthetic tropes that the media use, let me paraphrase Clifford Geertz here, are not merely reflections of pre-existing sensibilities, he says. They are positive agents in the organization and maintenance of sensibility. So even though it would be naive or even misleading to assume that what the media proposes to become is what we ultimately become, it is perfectly legitimate and I would claim necessary to say that the media, as other types of public spectacles in different historical times, contribute to who we are by routinely performing certain ways of thinking, feeling, and acting that we as audience may or may not take up. It is fair then to ask, what kinds of communities, imagined communities, do the media invite us to belong to? Can they connect us together in a global village, or do they reproduce a Western community easily fatigued by distant others? Now, there are good reasons to believe that the latter is the case. We live in a society where our own private feelings are the measure by which we perceive and evaluate the world and others. And the media reflect this. They are almost obsessively preoccupied by our own interiorities, our intimate relationships, our fears and desires, our homes, our bodies and appearances. Reality television, for example, is one obvious manifestation of a public culture that takes intense narcissistic pleasure in staging the private. The news, formal and detached from emotion, as it often, often appears to be, becomes part of that society, a society of intimacy insofar as it reserves the potential for emotion for our own sufferers and leaves the faraway others outside our horizon of care and responsibility. Yet, as the BBC report reminds us, it might be otherwise, and the extent to which the news can do this, then it can also act as an agent of cosmopolitan imagination. It can make us imagine the world beyond our own community as a terrain, where our actions can make a difference. And it is to these exceptions that I believe we can build on. So let me now turn into the visibility of suffering, in particular, news broadcasts from three different Western European countries, and this is where Greece and Denmark come in. So the one is uh, BBC World, a UK-based network, uh, operating globally, a global news agency, and then two national Uh, television um, uh, networks the Greek national television and the Danish national television and both of them are actually drawing on their international stories uh, on uh, transnational networks like the BBC or CNN or Al Jazeera uh, very often in the case of of Greek television at least so now what I really want to show uh, is that there is a major contrast uh, between news stories that contribute to recreating Um, what we may call communitarian publics, publics organized around our our own neighborhoods, uh, which perpetuate global intimacy, and the rare, extraordinary news stories that help us become cosmopolitans in a modest and moderate way in our everyday lives. Now, these contrasts, these differences, obviously correspond to broader hierarchies, um, in global relationships of power, and they reflect the historical fact, well documented by others, that some places, and therefore some human lives, deserve more news time, more attention, and more resources from us than others.
0: There's, just a, there's some slight irritation noise out there. I don't quite know why. It's the first time that I've ever been in this, that we've had this musical uh, background. <laughs> the oh. closer you can speak to the microphone, the better, I think, because right, there is yes. a bit of oh, noise okay. the back. Is that better now? Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, so uh, let me just start with two uh, news stories that uh, recreate what we may call communitarian media publics, and these differ very much from one another. So let me start from the first type. Here is an example. This comes from uh, BBC World. It's a BBC World News from 2002. Uh, it is really a report, a very brief, descriptive, and factual report on uh, a boat accident in India. So uh, the, the uh, story of it is, is, as I said, very brief. Uh, a river boat capsized in River Baitarani in the Indian province of Orissa as it was making its way towards Jaipur town. Forty people died, most of them schoolchildren, on their way from school. And what we see here is that uh, this uh, very brief narrative uh, was accompanied by th- that particular um, uh, image. This is a double map, a map of the uh, province of India with um, uh, dots on the uh, relevant geographical locations. And this is what I tend to call these pieces of news dots on the map. And then a kind of a, a, a map of the, um, of the globe or part of it with India framed in it. Um, Now, the interesting thing about this is that uh, it's it's a story, a tragic story of suffering, but there is no living context of suffering here. There is no action, no people, no emotions, uh, no imagination. Um, Now, this absence of the representation of either sufferer's action or the location of, of the scene of suffering itself is a choice, not perhaps a conscious choice, of a particular journalist or particular um, um, media network. But nonetheless, it is a choice with moral consequences. It comes with a particular statement about what to do in this occasion. And the message here is, do nothing, care not. The geographical distance to this place, graphically as it is represented here through the map, also becomes an emotional or moral, if you like, distance between us and them. I now have a a different story, a dissimilar story, but I think it's quite, uh, quite close to this in terms of the work it does to interrupt emotion, to interrupt connectivity with distant sufferers. And this is from Bangladesh floods in 2004. Now, the big difference here is that we have a visualization of suffering. We've got imagery here. Uh, the uh, story is again brief uh, and it is factual and descriptive. It characterizes uh, the floods uh, as a biblical catastrophe, which is quite a strong evaluative term. And there is also a reference to thousands of people feared drowned, a suppressed emotion there as well. But if we could see that as a moving image, we would notice that it is all, um, all, uh, all sequences are in long shot. There are people, but there are no close-ups and no kind of frontal gazing towards us or towards the camera. There is no purposeful action. There is no voice. Now, one of the things that long shot does, in terms of, um, of as a filming technique, is that it universalizes the scene. This particular scene of suffering as well. This could have been elsewhere, at some other time, involving another population. So the long shot, so to speak, abstracts from the here and now. It abstracts from the urgency of a particular event. And what it does also, on top of that, is that it creates some kind of aesthetic distance from lived reality. It's all about water, trees, and human figures in a static, almost serene composition. It doesn't seem to me, at least, that this is the footage of a catastrophe, which covered 60% uh, of a flood, which covered 60% of the nation, and where 40,000 people were feared drowned, and 20 million were either displaced or became dependent on food aid for at least a year. This is a tableau vivant, inviting contemplation of a spectacle of a flooded land. What's my point here? Not aesthetic analysis, certainly. What I want to say is that the minimal narration of suffering, the interruption of emotion vis-à-vis these uh, incidents, these accidents, these catastrophes, is part of our regular diet of daily news reports. And we can say that it is the majority. And there is a pragmatic argument about this, selectivity. We cannot report on everything nor can we report on everything in the same order of importance. In this sense, this class of news does not represent an immoral or or, or evil or bad type of journalism as opposed to a a more benevolent um, or moral type of reporting. It is part of a particular logistics of news gathering and reporting. Perhaps so, yes. But what I would like to point out is that this interruption of emotion is also a moral claim in its own right. It reminds us that emotion is a scarce resource, and that part of the capacity of news to present the world to us is its capacity to reserve the potential for emotion for some other sufferers, not them. And to locate these outside our own community of belonging and to place their suffering beyond the remit of our own action. And perhaps it will be easier to capture this point if we contrast this to our class of news that I'm about to present to you, uh, which is very different. It involves a very different uh, management of visibility. Now, the pieces of news I'm going to present now include rich, very rich verbal and visual narratives and very aesthetically complex stories that demand our exclusive, sustained and active engagement with the sufferers. And they are not ordinary, they are are extraordinary. And they are not a majority, they are a minority. I call these ecstatic news. And I use the term ecstatic to mean that these pieces of news manage to break with our, with our ordinary conception of time as a swift flow of now moments and present us with truly historic time. With what uh, philosopher Alain Badiou calls moments when a minute lasts a lifetime or when a week seems to fly by in next to no time. Ecstatic here captures our shock and disbelief at the moment of the second plane crash on the World Trade Center, a moment when a minute seems to last a lifetime. Now, in terms of news conventions, what this means is a move from the ordinary broadcast, the the daily broadcast, to the live footage, to an uninterrupted flow of images and stories with various degrees of emotional power. And here are three sequences from the uh, Danish national television channel on that day. So the first one captures something very specific, something very specific about these events. It presents us with a right here, right now quality of events. Here is a Danish panel in the Copenhagen studio discussing events as they are unfolding minute to minute. And there is a direct phone link to the Danish consul in New York uh, giving his own account as an eyewitness of the chaos and mayhem in Manhattan, uh, Manhattan in those hours. And that was interrupted suddenly when the first pictures came through to the Copenhagen studio showing us uh, some um, scenes from in after the uh, collapse of the towers with ambulances uh, uh, rushing through the streets, the, obviously the camera is covered in white dust, people trying to get away. Um, uh, from, the, uh, from the scene there, um, we've got a, um, a sequence as part of the live footage where we are witnesses of events as they are unfolding, and unfolding in real time. But the live footage can do, of course, more than that. And here is something else that was inserted. It was like an update of events of that same morning that was regularly inserted into the flow of the footage to remind new viewers of what had happened earlier on that day. And we can see here that uh, we we kind of uh, get presented with a a very different temporality. It It is as if we were there everywhere where the attacks happened and where action took place. It's a kind of an omnipresence in the immediate past. So we are there with the tower's collapse We are there at the Pentagon, so from New York to Washington, D.C., to Florida, where uh, uh, President Bush gave his first appeal to the American people, um, uh, reassuring them that they were going to hunt down those folks who committed that act, if you remember. So what happened there with a kind of cutting and sequencing of these particular events, and particularly with the uh, Bush speech being uh, inserted there for verbatim, is that we already have an attempt to provide cohesion and causality in this event. So if the previous sequence was about positioning us as witnesses of a catastrophe here and now, this is about positioning us in the first attempts to write September the 11th as history. And that's a third part of that sequence, that is from Ellis Island. As you can see again, the long shot creates a very aestheticized landsca- uh, cityscape. Now the Manhattan in gray smoke. What happens here again, we are very much removed from the urgency of the here and now. There is an, an analytical temporality opened up, which provides us with the option for some contemplation. And indeed, the voiceover of this is the expert panel that we saw in the first uh, sequence debating tentatively debating the causes and consequences of these events so this is really a hectic alternation of genres, a multiple flow of images that (coughs) enable us to engage with the scene of suffering in multiple ways to empathize, to denounce and to reflect on the suffering and importantly sufferers appear to us as thoroughly humanized and historical beings People who feel, reflect, and act on their faith In short, people like us. With them, we identify. What we recognize in them is the same quality of humanness that makes us feel pain, terror, or vulnerability. And we are united with them in denouncing these evildoers. And I remind you here of Le Monde's uh, uh, headlines on the 12th of September 2001. We are all Americans. And we are united with them in supporting the benefactors. I wouldn't claim that the political legitimacy of the war on terror depended on television, but the fact that this event was reported um, across the globe with this ecstatic quality certainly influenced the mood, certainly uh, shaped the sensibility. Now let me move quickly to another piece of news which which provides us with a different type of agenda, a different quality of urgency, but still belongs to the category of the ecstatic. We're going to watch a, a video of this in a second. Now was the ecstatic quality of the tsunami, disaster, due to the scale of the catastrophe or the scope of suffering, which was indeed huge? Perhaps... But also, importantly, it was due to the reasons that Kofi Annan formulated in a BBC interview on on the 9th of of January, just a few days after after the event. What he said there was that the unprecedented aid to tsunami victims is due to the fact that the whole world witnessed the tragedy. And he added also to the fact that 60 nations mourned their own victims in this catastrophe. And let me remind you that 9,000 Westerners, most of them Scandinavians, were spending their holidays um, across the the coastline that hit the tsunami around that area. So from the perspective of the management of visibility, the tsunami catastrophe marked, at least according to Dan Gilmore, uh, a turning point in user-generated content videos. Many of them subsequently broadcast in world media. So what we have there is the right-here-right-now quality of an extraordinary event combined with witness accounts coming from people like us. A sense of broadcasting that created in a way very different to the September 11th another sense of belonging together in a community of vulnerability. This was a faraway disaster Hitting people who live next door. So let me just play you this, uh, just a minute of this video. Uh, that was shown at least in YouTube by two and a, two and a half million people. It was also broadcast on television. And uh, it's just uh, I, an amateur video. Can
0: you get over and look. I oh no, I can see it. Battery, cake. Yeah. This one's running out. Oh, blooming. My God, he's coming! Oh, yeah. oh my God!
3: Yeah, look, look that.
0: At that. I know, I can see it coming.
3: <laughs> jet jet yeah, no, I've got the Yeah, I
0: said it's a He's all right. He's on the yeah, seat. Like How this that. battery lasts. Oh oh no, no.
3: No.
0: Jesus Christ, look at that! Jesus
3: Christ. Fucking hell! Help!
0: I know, I can see it! That wave is oh a good 15-20 feet tall. Easy!
2: witness of a tsunami here. I mean, what we see is really uh, stuff that families do when they are on holiday. I mean, it was just a video, uh, rough quality of image, casual conversation, the accent. It was very much a close to home quality to it. They were all kind of watching that phenomenon, seemingly unaware of, of, of its magnitude. And suddenly there is panic and fear as they are confronted with a sublime force of nature coming towards them. So, It does have an effect. It takes us there, as it's all happening, close to people who are like us. Um, So let me sum up so far, because we've kind of um, uh, rounded off the first part of of, of my uh, presentation of news here. Now, the first type of news, the dots on the map, so to speak, includes stories that we hardly ever remember. Ecstatic news, on the other hand, is about stories that are hard to forget, Now, despite the radical differences in the management of visibility of suffering, these stories share a key feature. They address their audiences as an already constituted community. This is a community united in blocking our emotions for irrelevant sufferings or united in fully empathizing with sufferers who are like us, safe West. As a consequence, neither type of news can invite their audiences to engage in public action towards suffering that occurs anywhere else. And it seems to me that those who celebrate uh, the creation of global communities through television viewing find justification in the empirical reality of ecstatic news, where the far away appears suddenly too close for us to ignore. And those concerned with compassion fatigue, on the other hand, no more of the African children dying, at least partially, and I'll come back to that, find justification in the empirical reality of those news where suffering might be visible, but nobody appears humane enough to move us to response. Neither of these two classes of news provides us with a quality of connectivity that brings with it any responsibility to act on uh, people who suffer outside our own communities of belonging. So part of what I'm, I'm saying has already been said. There is a bias in the intersection between global and national news, a bias that is defined by historical and political power relations. As I said, this is well documented, but we need to go a bit further than this and ask the question of what kinds of sensibilities then does this bias uh, achieve? And what kinds of collectivities do our media, by enacting this bias, enable us to imagine? Are there, alterni- are there any alternatives to these? Now, there is a type of news that can push our sensibilities beyond our own community. This is a seemingly very um, simple, but I would say subtly complex class of news, where the visibility of suffering is managed in an in-between space. One that does not completely deprive the sufferer of her humanness, nor does it render that sufferer completely sovereign, thoroughly humane. And the key feature of this class of news is that it incorporates in its story of suffering the demand for action. And this is why I call it emergency news. And let us have a look at a couple of examples, both coming from Greek television this time. Now, this is a piece on the economic crisis that hit Argentina in 2002, with famine deaths occurring um, uh, in the poor province of Tucumán, especially among uh, young children. Now, this piece of news informs us that these children are dying of hunger, and that their gaze does not leave us space for complacency. It also refers to Hilda Dualde, who was then the first lady of the country, her self-help programs for the poor, and then mentions the fact that U.S. aid arrived too late and it was of too bad a quality to be used by the Argentinians, who were then angry at the U.S. And that's it. That's what the story says. Now, the management of visibility, as you can see, is basically organized around a series of images of children suffering, crying, lying in hospitable beds. So the difference with images we've seen before is that here there is agency over there suffering. There are hospital, hospitals. There is a government. These children are being taken care of. But that agency is not enough. There is some sense of dignity and humanness in these sufferers, but it is not enough to take them out of their suffering. A similar one. This is a piece on a Nigerian woman convicted to death by stoning by a Nigerian um, Sharia court in 2002. And this is a piece of news that provided us with some historical information on the case of Amina Waluk. Um, and had considerable affective power, especially since it included this mobbing scene in in, in an African street uh, of a woman by by a group of men. Now what happens here is we have a different representation of Amina as as a sufferer. She is a woman with a face, a name, an age, and she holds her baby in her arms, very much kind of drawing on uh, what... Critics of the the compassion fatigue argument have used uh, have called the Christian iconography of the West a Madonna type of picture Amina, Amina, Amina does not have a voice it is Amnesty International who speaks for her explaining why she was convicted she had a child outside marriage and urges us to sign a petition to save her life However, this woman is still endowed with some agency. She has done something, and she has uh, some uh, historical qualities that qualify her as a human being. She has what we may call conditional agency. She's able to be active in a limited and ineffective way, and therefore we need external intervention, but she is still somebody with a humanity and a dignity that we did not see in previous pieces of news. Now, what do I really want to say by presenting those uh, pieces of emergency news? I do not want to say that these pieces of news go beyond the West, that they do not evoke the West as an imagined community where we belong. Of course they do. It is rather that they present us with some demand for engagement that does not exclusively follow from our own already belongingness to our own community. We are neither the apathetic spectators of dot on the map news nor the over engaged spectators of ecstatic news. We are simply confronted with the question of suffering as a problem to be solved. And we are just invited to consider our commitment to it, to the suffering, as a matter of our own judgment. Is the Argentinian famine victims or Aminazi imminent stoning a cause worthy of our action? In just posing this question for our own reflection even for a minute, emergency news also opens up a space that pushes us beyond the concerns of our own communities of belonging, beyond the obligations of the communitarian bond. But again, and having said that, There is a difference between the two. The Argentinian news confronts us with images of sick children lying in hospital. It stirs our emotions, but ultimately leaves us wondering, how can I help, what can I do? This is too much of the shock effect without an outlet to effective action. And this is another very good reason for what theorists have called compassion fatigue. We've seen enough of that, we can do nothing. This one, however, tells us what to do. It's very simple. Sign this petition. You can save her life. Now, the presence of Amnesty International is instrumental here. Amnesty International is both about values no to stoning and about actions, defending that life, monitoring regimes. As Mary Caldor puts it, Amnesty enacts cosmopolitanism in a dual sense. As a moral sentiment, and as a political project and is this duality in the agency of amnesty that enables this piece to combine a politics of emotion towards that per- woman as a person with a claim to justice do something for to save her life and so what you may ask is signing a petition cosmopolitan action is this what cosmopolitanism is all about well the short answer to this my answer to this is yes we are not here talking about a grand cosmopolitanism we are not talking about a fully blown vision of a new kind of society nor do we promise an army of global citizens emerging out of our banal habit of watching the news just like the humanness of Amina belongs to a twilight zone as I said being and not being like us It's a conditional agency. So is the cosmopolitan agency that we have. It is unstable, fleeting, and contingent. It is conditional cosmopolitanism. It depends both on the limited options for action that our public culture offers us. What can we do? As Luke Boltanski says, all you can do as a Western citizen is pay and speak. You can donate money, you can adopt a child, you can perhaps contribute to a, a telethon and you can speak out you can go out in a demonstration write a letter to the editor or sign a petition but historically speaking in modern european western democracies the options for action for citizens are limited so conditional cosmopolitanism is constrained on that on that level and it is also constrained on another level this is mediated suffering What it demands is action at a distance. There is so much you can do as a citizen in our societies and there is so much you can do on suffering that you watch on television. So conditional cosmopolitanism does not presuppose a radical shift from the management of visibility that we have followed so far in all these pieces of news. It is just a a subtle shift. It presupposes a proposal to take responsibility, to speak or to pay, in ways that may make a real difference to, peop- to people's lives, as it has indeed done in Aminan Law's case. It is about news that neither block emotion, as we have seen, nor stir emotion, and leave us with the sentimentalism of the shock effect. None of this can do anything. They can, all they can lead to is compassion fatigue. Conditional cosmopolitanism is rather about a subtle balance between feeling for and reflecting reflecting on each individual case of suffering that journalists have already deemed worthy of our attention. Now this is an option that audiences may or may not decide to take up, but at least there is this option. They can have that choice. This reflexive and low-key disposition shapes, I believe, the kind of cosmopolitan figure more generally that we can pragmatically expect of our media today. A figure of moderate feelings and moderate actions. Someone sufficiently aware of some big issues, but not really the fully informed citizen, as some people aspire us to be. Someone with a fleeting sense of responsibility whenever we judge the cause to be right but not fully present emotionally in the act of protest or the act of philanthropy. Someone with values, somebody who believes in projects of justice, but is not necessarily committed to grand narratives of political and humanitarian activism. So unlike some cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan talk today, which is rather moralizing and which deplores the lack of community and passion in our public life, I believe that we should not expect our media to imagine us in the figure of a good Samaritan, but rather in the more modest figure of the stoic cosmopolitan. The former option, the good Samaritan, is not only unrealistic, but it is also dangerous. Behind fully present emotions and passions, or fully blown identifications with others, lies, as we saw in ecstatic news, the narcissistic intimacy the communitarian reflex; It drives us to care for others who are like us. Now, given that emotions are a scarce resource, we cannot care about every single sufferer in the same way at all times. But what we can expect from our media is that they can at least make sure that we care for the right people at the right time. We expect from our media that they can remind us of this simple fact, Our actions may be more relevant and effective when they are oriented towards those who are in need, precisely because they do not share our own humanity, rather than towards others like us. And social solidarity as a cultural and political sensibility, rather than a fully blown political project of the socialist international of the past, So social solidarity as a cultural political sensibility is a necessary dimension of the cosmopolitan project. And this is because, in my view, cosmopolitanism is not only about transnational governance or post-national political constellations or whatever else people like Habermas, for example, would argue. It is also about the power of the media to stretch our concerns beyond our own local perspectives and the importance of journalists and of NGO practitioners in this process of creating that cosmopolitan imagination cannot be emphasized enough now what I talked about today was the power of the visibility of suffering in the news this I said is an ambiguous and controversial kind of power. And I showed one important reason as to why this is so. It is a positive power because it brings us closer to human pain and confronts us with the responsibility of what to do to improve the lives of vulnerable others. It is negative because it only poses the question of what to do when the moral claim to a better life is reserved for sufferers who are like us. Whereas others, notably the UNESCO, but also scholars like uh, Annabelle Srebreni, uh, Stanley Quinn, Jim Siton, and of course Roger Silverstone, have raised similar questions, uh, looking at the bias in global information flows, looking at the decline in foreign reporting or in the hierarchies of place and human life in our media. I talked about this from the perspective of how the management of the visibility of suffering raises acute questions regarding our emotional identifications and the imagination of community in our global age. I have already emphasized the responsibility of journalists in the process, though obviously this is not the whole story, and journalism is a whole economy of institutions, practices, and cultures. Now, if there is anything to iterate in this context, this is that news are formed before they are gathered, as Jack Lude says, and to call for journalists' reflexivity over the ways in which they manage the visibility of suffering. But here at the LSE, in the Department of Media and Communications, and at POLIS, our think tank on journalism and society, we do more than this. We practically address the questions of reflexivity, we generate debate and we engage with journalists and scholars across a range of issues on the, on the role of journalism in social life. Polis was conceived and set up by Roger Silverstone, who sadly left us early. But his vision on the media polis, the global space of appearance, the appearance of suffering and of evil, is still with us. It inspires us to continue placing questions of ethics and the public life at the center of our research and our debates on journalism. And by way of conclusion, I would like to draw on what I said and on that broader agenda to inform you of just one single element of our intellectual agenda at POLIS, which is by no means exhaustive, but which is directly informed by um, what we've uh, discussed so far. So calling for journalistic reflexivity, as I have said, is good enough, but it is not the whole story. We need to go further than this. We need to start thinking about our public sphere, not only in terms of our own politics, politics national or international, deliberative democracy, public service regulation, celebrity culture, which are all things Polis is doing and will continue to do we need to push our understanding of the public sphere, spheres if you like, beyond our own zone of comfort and safety. We need to think about the public sphere as a space of vulnerability. Now there is a strong line of political and feminist thinking that is doing precisely that, starting from Hannah Arendt to Nancy Fraser to Sarah Ahmed to Judith Butler. As we are moving towards Uh, transnational or even post-national as they call it, constellations it is precisely this sense of our mutual dependence our openness to physical injury and symbolic harm to death and mourning that can become a new foundation for social and political integration this is their argument and it may be debatable for all sorts of reasons but for us here talking about the media well the media are already, already doing this Our imagination of the world is primarily an imagination of the vulnerability of others, and sometimes of ourselves. So what we can research and what we can debate is whether the media address the moral deficiencies of global inequality by giving access, voice, and fair visibility to those who need it most. Whether the media can, at least sometimes and in an imperfect way, act as what Silverstone would say, agents of hospitality. Now this is a key element in the police agenda today. We are launching a series of events on humanitarian communication. If, as I have argued so far, humanitarian communication is instrumental in bringing social solidarity in our everyday life, what happens when NGOs Find themselves operating in a hugely competitive environment in order to get in the news agenda in the first place. There is a clear tendency for humanitarian organisations today towards a corporate model of communication, towards turning suffering into a commodity package with celebrities, with celebrities, um, wristbands, and movies that are endorsed by uh, Amnesty International like Blood Diamond with uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio um, as a protagonist so it, there is a move towards turning suffering into a commodity package and towards marketing NGOs themselves in a professional manner as corporate brands this is the work of Anne Vestergaard in Denmark for example or the work of Simon Kottle in Cardiff uh, have demonstrated this Key questions arise here. People pay. NGOs accumulate brand value. But what happens to public sensibilities and and moral virtues? What's the fine line between conditional cosmopolitanism and individualist consumerism? And which is the role and the ethical responsibility of journalists in accelerating or moderating this process? Indeed, at the heart of my own research project, as well as policies, lies the question of ethics. Even though um, I did manage to go through this talk without really mentioning the word ethics many times and without certainly defining it as a proper scholar should. This is indicative of a particular way of being ethical, of a particular ethos towards the majority, uh, sorry, towards the major question that media and journalism face in our global age our encounter with other humans and the definition uh, we give to humanity. And that is a great challenge. There is, I would claim, in conclusion, no general and definitive response to this question. And there is no how this should be. There is only search. There is a collective, open, and continuous search for the different meanings of humanity in the different media environments, and forms of life where these come up. And as I tried to show today, this is a search for meaning for the meaning of humanity in the hermeneutic sense. What does it mean to be human in the multiple contexts of our media, old and new? But also it is a search for meaning in a more philosophical sense. What happens to our humanity when the media fill our screens with vulnerable others? What happens to our humanity when the media confront us with the other in our own selves. It is in addressing these questions again and again that it seems to me that we may become better citizens, better journalists, and better scholars. But most importantly, cosmopolitans in our everyday life willing and able to make a difference in this vulnerable global village. Thank you very much.
0: are happy to take questions from there. There is an advantage that you can be seen from everywhere, whereas if you're here, you're sort of slightly uh, hidden. Thank you very much uh, for that. Um, I always wonder why so many women manage to get George Clooney into their presentations (laughs) one way or another, but that's a a puzzle we can deal with on another day. Um, But uh, I'm happy to open it to uh, questions now. We have a few minutes. Uh, Have we got the microphones or have they not appeared? Okay, you'll just have to stand up and shout. If you can give your name, that'd be great. Thanks. Stay
2: yep. away? Yes. Well, thank you for your question. It's very pertinent. Uh, well, the answer is yes and no. Um, I think what I do is enough insofar as what I claim to do is to uh, address suffering as public communication, as a mode of address, as a way of, if you like, proposing dispositions for action. So it is a particular dimension of the public sphere and the dynamics of the public sphere that I am addressing by looking at messages, if you like. However, um, to do justice to your question and and, and to the project that you are uh, bringing forth and representing, I do believe that it is necessary to also look at the ways in which these, uh, these proposals, these messages, these recommendations, if you like, of the media are being taken up by audiences. And I think a more integrated, a fuller picture of where we are, a better diagnostic, if you like, claim of, 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 of contemporary public life in terms of our um, uh, connectivities to distant others would include that dimension as well. But sometimes I feel that there is um, some kind of um, you know, uh, unproblematic optimism about how much we can tell by just asking people about what they do. it's as if what they say is necessarily what the public life or the public sphere is about. So I think that complementing the one with the other would be um, um, a prudent way to go about um, a further diagnosis of our condition.
0: Thanks. There was somebody else just here. Yes, woman in pink. Sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to stand and shout again.
2: I don't have a direct answer to this question, but I do have a position towards the uh, problem you're outlining, and this is the following. For the very long time in theory and in practice of, of media studies and of journalism, um, we tend to think of um, communication, mediated communication as image, as a flow of images, as something that, just by virtue of, vi- of being there, it influences us, it has an impact on us, and a lot of the arguments either about how global our world has become about the media, or there is also the, the, the negative argument, the more optimistic argument about how the media alienates us from the real world or alienates us from distant others, is based on that, I think, you know, in my view, very crude understanding of information flows as just a flow of undifferentiated messages. Uh, Now, in a way, in order to position that work in a different field than the one I just kind of outlined in the presentation, in a way, my research was also a response to that by trying to problematize the nature and the properties and the particular dynamics of that flow of images and try to show that, in fact, there is no undifferentiated flow that can create either the one or the other response and that if we look closely into empirical examples, we will see that we can separate out those that can make a difference from those that can switch us off, for example. In terms of humanitarian communication, what I try to make clear is that we need a very specific management of the visibility of suffering that involves a personalization of the sufferer, so some measure of emotion into this, and second, a, uh, uh, the voice of a global authority like Amnesty International to validate and to give a moral and a political weight uh, to the claim to justice. Um, and I think that these are you know, very specific, if you like, analytical perspectives on to how we might be able to start providing a better analysis or a better diagnosis of how you know, images in our media flow uh, in our everyday life that is some kind of answer to your question.
0: Thank you. Yes, uh, third row here. Sorry, I mean, there is no mic, so you'll just...
1: Absolutely, yes.
2: I think that's a great question. In fact, just to be completely sincere with you, that's a part of the talk that I had to take out (laughs) (laughs) because of of time constraints. It was the other major issue that I would touch on today, and it is another major part of our policy agenda, is to look at the ways in which new media, particularly user-generated content, but also more broad, if you like, movements within uh, within the, uh, uh, the area of new media uh, and, and, and the involvement of citizens in the production of journalistic material, you know, citizen journal, network journalists are actually um, shifting the terms, the power relations, if you like, between production and consu- consumption, and how they are redefining the terrain of what journalistic knowledge or journalistic authority might be uh, about today. Now, I think there are good and bad uh, aspects to that. Uh, let me just, I have a slide here. Uh, uh, here it is. I mean, here is, you know, uh, the Burma Monk riots in 2007. That was actually information coming out of Burma uh, by a citizen a journalist when no other information during those days of crisis was allowed to go through the country. So it's about crushing the kind of elite gate, the political elite gatekeeping and making it known to the world that there is uh, actually a resistance movement there by the monks. Here again, we've got the example of a a citizen uh, uh, filming the the assassination of Benazir Bhutto earlier in the year uh, through a mobile camera. I mean, these are um, uh, exciting developments that both democratize the circulation of information Um, and and they make more people uh, able to make a claim to producing reality and disseminating reality, but they do also pose questions of validity, questions of authority, uh, questions of how to separate uh, what is useful and valid information from what is not. And it also poses, I think, another challenge to journalists who need now to catch up with so much more than they had to before and at a tempo and the speed that uh, journalistic analytical thinking, investigative journalism, uh, was not used to. So it's a different temporality in which uh, journalists need to, to work on now that I think um, um, needs to be um, reflected on and perhaps studied more in order for us to see where it's going to take us and what implications it will have in the long run. But certainly a major theme uh, for debate and study for us
0: a couple more yeah and a bit um.
2: Absolutely. Yes, I think you are absolutely right about that. Um, I think there is also another um, um, element to that. Now, I think uh, even if that has been happening for some time, NGOs, in a way, kind of coming in and, and setting a, uh, an agenda and framing perhaps particular crises as humanitarian emergencies or whatever. Uh, I think what worries me more today is the fact that for humanitarian agencies to um, actually uh, get into the news agenda, they need to uh, resort to uh, uh, an increase in pervasive commodification uh, of of their messages. So instead of actually pushing these issues as NGOs into into the news, they now need to push these issues as commodities, as celebrities, as part of a particular entertainment uh, entertainment. Um, uh, you know uh, aspect of of society particularly uh, for younger audiences. so I think there is you know the relationship between media and NGOs is something that I'm going to get into uh, more uh, now uh, in the future and I think the aspect you mentioned and the flip side of this that I am mentioning now is is exactly the duality that needs to be um, explored more.
0: There's someone just behind yeah.
2: It is good to a certain extent, and to deny that, I don't know where it takes us, where else we can go, because we do live in in, in a society of celebrity. We live in a consumer society, and and these are the conditions in which uh, um, NGOs need to operate in the public sphere. So I don't want to um, um, condemn these practices or stay away from them or, or say that we need to go back into something else. Certainly not. But we also need to be careful. I wouldn't go as far as celebrating them. Um, I think there is a sense in which uh, NGOs and humanitarian communication more generally should be doing something more than just using people to raise money, using people for one-off events. Humanitarian communication for me has a dual purpose. It is about fundraising, but it is also about what I said before, practical appeal and the moral claim. Isn't there a question of what kinds of virtues, what kinds of public sensibilities you want people to have as a collectivity? Will NGOs go down the road of just delivering a particular package of solutions to a particular crisis? And that's why I think you know raising the question of humanitarian communication in the context of public life and the kinds of ethical claims that different types of communication make in terms of who we are, who we are imagined to be, is I think extremely important. And really, it is just a word of caution rather than a condemnation of the use of celebrity. Um, I loved Live Aid when I was in my twenties. You know, I watched it and I was a big fan. But I think there are questions that are raised by by that that continually actually have intensified today, and should make us think about what more, you know, what else.
0: Man uh, in white shirt, right at the back. Cool, like a work shirt. I sort of do. It's got stripes on there, hasn't it? Okay. You, anyway.
2: First one. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I mentioned at some point that was not the focus of that presentation, but obviously uh, the interruption of emotion is, not, is just one dimension at which we can uh, start looking critically at the whole economy of news production and the way in which um, uh, from uh, technical apparatus to uh, reporters. Uh, uh, groups are distributed across the globe and and are there stationed to report from particular parts of the globe. So it's a whole machinery of news gathering and production that I think uh, is inherently biased. So the interruption of emotion is perhaps only the kind of discursive, if you like, visual uh, tip of the iceberg uh, of that. Um, In the book, in the Spectatorship of Suffering, I was actually contrasting uh, the representation of floods in Bangladesh with uh, the representation of uh, floods in Central Europe. Now, in terms of um, the magnitude of the catastrophe, uh, uh, the European floods uh, were not that bad. They were very bad, particularly because they threatened the kind of cultu- cultural heritage of some big cities in Central Europe. However, the, uh, the news coverage of this and the, and the kinds of agents, the infrastructure that was brought into supporting that in our own media. Was uh, immense. It was. It was. It was more than emergency news for some countries in Europe, in Central Europe, and, and uh, definitely, I think, for for uh, for Denmark, uh, for a couple of days, it was almost ecstatic. And and it is just really a contrast between uh, between the reports uh, coming from two different world locations, um, and and saying that well, okay, the red journalists weren't there, the equipment wasn't there. Um, and, and therefore, the emotion wasn't there either. But isn't that part of the same problem? So that's, that's, uh, that's one question to this. And, and, and the other thing about, um, about the representation, different representations of suffering, uh, is that your, um, your question, the taboos about showing death or, or, or not. Right. Right. Well, let me let me just put that very briefly. I think there is a particular unwritten uh, rule, so to speak, in, in, in a Western sensibility, if you like, about uh, our media not showing graphic pictures of, of suffering and and, uh, and death. Um, and and this is contrasted to other media, which have a completely different code of of representation. and and where uh, gross pictures of of dead bodies and and suffering can appear. Uh, Erroneously, this is often um, described as a contrast between civilized and uncivilized practices of representation. However, what I have to say is that there are cases in which Western media have shown incredibly graphic images of of death, the actual moments of death, for example, Saddam Hussein execution, um, and others, which don't come to my mind right now, uh, but this is certainly one of them, uh, which were motivated by particular political agendas. So these uh, codes of, of practice are never hard and fast. And even though we do call these practices ethical and, and in line with particular Western sensibility, I think that uh, they can be re-articulated and they can be bent around depending on the political interest that's behind uh, a particular uh, news project.
0: I'm going to take one more, i because we're running up, right against our time. I'll take you in a second. Sorry, <laughs> sorry.
2: Thank you very much. Yes, well, that, that is a topic, again, I would have liked to have touched upon. I mean, it is a question of regulation and the codes of ethics that generally should um, or do comply with. Um, from the perspective of what I discussed today and from the kinds of, of, of kind of uh, theoretical problematics I, I, I brought to bear on, on the material, um, I would say that. Codes of ethics are good, and codes of ethics are there to be observed and to be be obeyed. However, sometimes they do not address broader and deeper questions of the implications of particular choices um, in reporting, in in editing, in representing um, um, as as they appear uh, on our television Uh, or or, or in, in the media. I'll come to that in a minute. So uh, what I mean is uh, the whole moral question of what implications, what we do have on the world around us, how we present others is not uh, an explicit part of most uh, codes of ethics. And one of the things that, for example, Roger Silverstone um, uh, advocated in, in, in his uh, last book was precisely a more ethically aware um, composition of, of codes of conduct. That's one thing. The second thing is that with new media and with all the issues that were raised before about, um, about gener- uh, user-generated content, the new speed, um, a kind of uh, difficulty in, in validating and investigating in depth, uh, new ethical questions arise that need to be taken into account. They need to be on the one hand codified and on the other hand reflected upon in terms of these broader moral issues as well. So um, that's a very brief.
0: I'm sorry to um, bring this to an end, but we're almost at um, 8 o'clock, so I'm going to encourage uh, those of you who still had questions, uh, particularly the woman in the third row, that you, you can ask the first question to her over a drink. Um, and uh, anybody else is, as I said at the beginning, invited to uh, come up to a reception on the fifth floor of the old building. Um, I should have said at the beginning that delivering an inaugural lecture is not... Um, however a kind of vaccination against having to deliver lectures in the future and um, I sense from the number of questions and the range of interest that uh, there is a lot of appetite to hear from you and others indeed on this subject and the ramifications of it so I hope that this uh, will be the first of many public appearances on the LSE stage uh, during your time here Um, and I thank you for doing this lecture and thank, thank you.